Welcome to the Money Curious Podcast. I'm your host, Laura, and I'm joined by my awesome co-host, Essien. Money Curious is dedicated to bringing you the best financial content, whether you're a millennial, Gen Z, or even a boomer. If you want great wealth building tips, if you're looking into some side hustles, or even just knowing about different investment and debt pay down strategies, then this is the podcast for you. Now, before we get into today's show, I need you guys to do us a favor. Hit that subscribe button and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on all other major listening platforms and on Instagram at Money Curious Podcast. Welcome, guys, to another episode of the Money Curious Podcast. Today's guest is Chris Hanna. So Chris is a financial coach that coaches UFC fighters and entrepreneurs. So it's a very unique set of clientele, and it's super exciting how he got into it. And can't wait for you to hear more about it. Yeah, we've never had a guest on like this. He has a really interesting background, not just in investing, both in his education and his entrepreneurial experience, but he also has experience being a professional card counter. He played blackjack for about a year right after college. I'm not going to spill too much of it, but he has a really interesting background and he has an interesting perspective on how he applies blackjack to his investment style. So I think this is something that you guys are going to really learn a lot from. Yeah. And with that, let's get into it. Chris, welcome to the Money Curious Podcast, man. How's it going? Hey, Essien. It's going great. Thank you for so much uh, for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to get into this. Uh, you have a really interesting background that I think our listeners and viewers can uh, learn a lot about. So uh, if you don't mind, just giving, just giving a quick background. Yeah, for sure. And hey, Laura, too. Yeah. Um, so I, I really, I, I didn't really enjoy school. That's kind of where a lot of this starts. And so uh, out of college, I had the opportunity to work on Wall Street. Uh, and I turned that down to go play blackjack, count cards at all these casinos across the country. Um, that was kind of a wild ride. But just two years later, two years after I graduated with a degree in finance and economics, uh, and had internships at a multi-billion dollar hedge fund, had training on Wall Street. Two years after that, I was sleeping in my car at a Walmart supercenter, just pursuing my passions, thinking that, oh, if I do what I love, the money's going to follow. And it just felt like it couldn't be further from the truth. And so that's sort of what sparked this uh, desire to dive into personal finance. And uh, I, I, you know, like most, just started reading all the books, the podcasts, YouTube, and all that. I uh, just found myself frustrated with the fact that I really didn't understand exactly what to do with my money, how to create and stick to a budget, how to sort of track and organize my money in an efficient way, and eventually figured out how to do that and then started uh, working with UFC fighters and entrepreneurs to help them do that as well. Wow, that's an incredible story. I think uh, one thing that really stood out to me about your story was that you're like a professional card counter and you did like professional blackjack. I don't know very, many people who decide to pursue that as a profession, uh, but also that you had all these side gigs as you were trying to, you know, like create and build your wealth. So really like Hustler Nation, <laughs> that is you. <laughs> you know, it is. And I, I don't look back at it as fondly as I did in the moment. You know, I, I like we just heard that constantly. And even now it's still paraded that you should, you know, uh, uh, grind, you should hustle. And I think that there's a time and a place for that, but it can also be taken to an extreme. And I feel like had I had a little bit more balance that I could have perhaps even been where I am today with less stress along the way. 
So I, I, I have to ask, man, like you had, like you said, these great offers on Wall Street. You had these internships on Wall Street. Why blackjack? So I just really, for the life of me, wanted to learn how to make money on my own. I just really wanted my freedom and independence. And I had learned back in, I don't know, when I was 14 or 15 years old, I saw the movie 21. It's this gambling movie, very loosely based on the MIT blackjack team from back in the 80s. Great movie, yeah. So it's romanticized and, and it's Hollywood, no doubt, but it opened my eyes to the idea that you could actually count cards and, and make money playing. So that sat in my head for the next eight years. And then once I had the opportunity to actually gamble being over 21, um, about for the, for the six months leading up to graduation, my room college roommate, who was also very much a numbers guy, he and I were just practicing counting cards and all the skills that you need to be a professional blackjack player. So by the time it actually came to graduate, it wasn't like, oh, maybe we should start and maybe this will work. We had already known at that point that we could play and that we could play well. So we just figured, well, shoot, let's, we're young, you know, we don't have a family to support, like, let's, let's go give this a try. Worst case, we can fall back on our degrees. And uh, it, it was certainly a ride. Uh, what did your parents think about that? they just weren't happy at all. I mean, yeah. I, I, I wanted to include, yeah. Like when I had this, I had this offer to take a job uh, at a hedge fund and I had pretty much made up my mind before I got them on the phone that I wasn't going to take it. Uh, ironically, I, I would have wanted that more than anything just a year prior, but yeah, I got on the phone with them and just as, like I was saying, my dad's an immigrant, you know, and my mom worked real hard. She, you know, they, they, they both, I grew up middle class and they worked real hard. So um, they were not happy to hear that I was going off in their heads just to go gamble. Like I try to take a logical approach and say, hey, but look, here's the numbers. If we do it like this, we'll make this much money. And I think on an emotional level, they really wanted what was best for me. They wanted me to take a, a safe path that was going to earn me some some decent money. And so, yeah, they, they, they weren't happy with it. Oh my goodness, yeah, I mean, like immigrant parents, I feel definitely have a standard. I mean, all parents have a standard for their kids and they want their kids to succeed and things like that. But um, perhaps like those who come from immigrant families, the the, sta the standard and the expectation is just like slightly higher. Like myself, I've, my parents are immigrants. And so they're like, they want me to follow, like go to college, get the, get the secure job and like, you'll be successful that way. But like things that are outside of that realm definitely make them question like, what are you doing? This is so risky. Why would you ever try to do that? You know, it's not safe. It's not, so, it's not guaranteed that you're going to make money. So, I mean, it worked out for you. Um, and I'm, and, you know, you were able to convince your parents otherwise with the results that you were seeing. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, definitely different for sure when someone comes over to this country and they're just all they want, certainly for their kids, is to have a better life and to not struggle like they did. So I, I completely relate. So let's uh, let's follow the story along here. So you uh, graduate from college, you have all this internship experience, you're about to take an offer. And then you said, no, I'm going to go do blackjack. So how long did that last? And what was that transition like going from blackjack to investor, entrepreneur, uh, financial coach? So I, it, it started, it lasted for about a year. That's about how long my, my uh, business partner and I were counting cards. And that was our primary source of income for about a year. So we, it actually, we were getting to a point, uh, this is just, three or four months after we graduated that uh, we felt confident enough to sign an apartment lease on blackjack money alone. And so that's what we did. 
uh, but it just, um, we got hit with some, th there's a lot of fluctuation in play. So like over the long run, it trends upwards, very much like the stock market, um, way more volatility than the stock market, but uh, it, it's supposed to trend upwards and that's what was happening, but we just didn't have a big enough bankroll to really support ourselves the way that we wanted to. So it got to a point where we're just like, hey, we can't do this anymore. We've got to find other ways to support ourselves. And that's when all this gig work started. So I started driving for Uber and Lyft. Um, I, I found this app called TaskRabbit. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. Uh, so I started taking all these tasks on TaskRabbit. I found a babysitting gig, a um, tutoring job for a high school student. And, and that was sort of my next transition into, uh, that was my next step in life, really. So uh, one more question I have, but it has to do with uh, the movie 21. And 21, <laughs> when they got caught counting cards, you know, they got taken to a, into a dark room, they got beat up, and then they said, never come to this casino ever again. Is that, does that still happen? Like, did, did that ever happen to you or anything? Or do you know anybody that experienced that? Uh, I've only been knocked around a couple times in a back room, but no, I'm just kidding. No, that's never happened. No, no, no. Uh, it's that that was very much happening back in like the eighties. I'm sure. I'm sure before that, but I think come like nineties. I I don't know where it would have happened very often. So what they do now is, um, and probably for the fact that now there's literally cameras everywhere. I don't know how prevalent that was back. You know, hundred. You know, fifty years ago. But yeah, they just come up to you. You know, if they think or are pretty certain that you're counting, they come up, give you a tap on the shoulder, uh, usually with two or three people. And they say uh, very kindly, usually, you know, sir, your blackjack skills are too good. We have to ask you not to play. Uh, oftentimes they'll say you're welcome to play any other games in the casino. Or if you're playing with huge amounts of money and they really just don't like you, they might just outright uh, trespass you, meaning they'll make you sign this thing that says you actually can't come back to our private place of business, this casino. If you do, we will arrest you not for being a, ca a card counter, but for trespassing uh, on our property. Wow, that is kind of extreme, I guess, like legal, legal, legally wise, right? Paperwork wise and contract, like that's a little bit intimidating. So yeah, totally understand that. Um, so it seems like to me that the first year that you did the the count, counting cards, like you maybe saw it as a great way to make money, build your wealth, and potentially saw it as an investment. But once you moved away from that, what was your approach to actually investing versus like gambling? Like, is there a line that you've crossed when that occurred? Yeah. So I, my experience in investing started back when I was 18, learning about the stock market. So oftentimes people have sort of their, their sort of um, investment, you know, uh, desires or expertise in either business, the stock market or real estate. Nowadays, it's also in digital assets, whether it's crypto or NFTs. For me, it was the stock market back when I was about 18. And then uh, I had met a, a buddy in college who helped me learn a whole lot about the stock market, continued to study it, my internships at a hedge fund trading on Wall Street. So that was very much my sort of field of, of my investment field. Um, so it got to a point, I mean, I, I'd say within about four or five years after starting to, starting to study that, I recognized that investing in an index fund that tracked either the US stock market or the S&P 500 was really going to be the way to go. One of the easiest ways to just get your money working for you uh, at a oftentimes 10% rate of return, no less. So that was always my bread and butter investing. Blackjack, uh, again, it was 
it was definitely an investment in that we had the knowledge to turn the edge in our favor. We were managing a bankroll uh, at a level where, you know, even in the most advantageous of scenarios, we almost never bet more than roughly one, one and a half percent of our whole bankroll. Very different from your average gambler who walks in with a hundred bucks and spends 50 bucks, 50 bucks, and they're done. So, I mean, after Blackjack, it, I just continued to fall back on, I'm going to invest in an index fund, primarily the S&P 500. And did that, so after Blackjack, I'm assuming the money that you used to invest, that came from the gig, the, the gig money, because you said Blackjack only lasted about a year or so, right? Yeah. And I wasn't investing too heavily in the stock market at that time. What I really wanted to do was invest in myself so that I could learn how to create better skills and, and create work that was more fulfilling for myself. So, I mean, way more money. I've put way more money into myself uh, than I have in the stock market over the last you know several years uh, in, in reading, in some courses, in hiring a, a business coach that helped me get my financial coaching business up and running, learning about you know, what a, a contract looked like, what I could, you know, what a program for clients might look like, like all these little things. And, um, and so, yeah, I've, I've invested more heavily in myself than almost anything else these last several years. So I remember a few weeks ago, I was in my office, right? And some, some of my coworkers were talking and they were talking about stocks, right? And one of them said, oh, if you don't know what you're doing, then it's all gambling. Then another coworker commented, hey, no matter what, it's always gambling. Right. And I didn't think that that was true. So you being a professional or an ex-professional blackjack player, what is the difference between your approach to blackjack versus investing? Or is there, are there any similarities between the two approaches in making money? Yeah. So the, the biggest mistake I see people make and that I've even made myself in the past is assuming that investing in gambling, that the difference between them is determined by what you are buying or what you're placing a bet on. So you, you could have a stock, you could have Bitcoin, blackjack, like all these things could, could be a vehicle for investing and they could be a vehicle for gambling. And the determining sort of factor, what, what makes the difference is going to be your knowledge that you have, your ability to turn the edge in your favor, um, you, the way that you're managing your bankroll or your investment portfolio. And oftentimes, how long-term you're thinking about. Because again, there's oftentimes so much volatility in these assets or in these investments, whether it's the stock market, a business, real estate, digital assets, Bitcoin is crazy right now. But for people who are really putting a bet or an investment into something and with the understanding or the belief that it's going to grow significantly long-term, talking 10, 20, 100 years, that, that's going to be an investment. Anything short without proper knowledge or bankroll management is going to be gambling. Wow, that's an interesting perspective. So thank you for sharing that, um, especially when you talk about the volatility that we see with Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, and then now more recently, NFTs, um, which I personally don't have a great understanding of NST, NFTs. I don't necessarily, I think it's very risky, so I don't invest in those. But you did mention it um, a couple of moments ago. So based off that type of volatility that you experience as a card counter, um, you know, in the gambling world, what would you say, do you have like some some initial tips that you can provide regarding those types of risky, more risky investments? Yeah, bankroll management is huge. So there are very, there are very like well-defined sort of um, mathematical criteria that if you can accurately assess the 
let's say your expected value and standard deviation. So what you expect to make and about how much you guys are your engineers, but you know, about how much you can expect your, like the true, the actual value to differ from that expected value. Um, if, if you, if you know a couple of those, um, sort of figures, or if you can estimate them to a decent degree, there are like, you know, Kelly criterion, uh, is a statistical sort of approach to making repeated bets in something that oftentimes has a lot of volatility where, you know, if you're doing it right, and it's, it's the approach that we took with blackjack using that system allowed us to almost to, to minimize our risk of ruin, our, 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 our risk of going almost completely bankrupt, like minimizing that to almost zero. And that's one of the biggest detriments that people face in these risky investments, because one of wealth's greatest assets is time, just being able to compound for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. And so when people are just over betting, they are risking the, their investments to drop significantly. And we know that you know, when an investment drops by 50%, it takes 100% to catch back up. So it's really about minimizing those losses. So based on what you just said, would you agree that it's more important to, um, how should I put this, to protect your downside rather than trying to optimize for the upside? Or is there like a combination of both that you'd have to use when investing? So for sure combination, but I think that the minimizing your downside gets a lot less attention. And because we just, we see these rates of return, whether it's 10% or now, right, we expect double or triple our return in crypto in like three months. Otherwise it's it's like, what's going on? Um, yeah, so that gets plenty of attention, but minimizing the downside doesn't get enough attention. And again, the reality is that, and, and I mean, that's also why people try and time the market so that they can sort of, you know, it goes all the way up and they try and get out just as it starts to go down and then get back in as it hits that to go back up. So it's, um, they're both important, but I think that the downside risk doesn't get enough attention. So another question that I did have for you is you actually are a financial co coach for a very particular niche. So you are a financial coach to UFC fighters, which we don't necessarily hear a lot about that type of kind of managing your money regarding those types of athletes, those types of professionals. How did you kind of get into specifically targeting that client clientele? Yeah, so UFC fighters in particular, they typically only fight and get paid two or three times a year. And that's wild when you consider the fact that most people get paid on a biweekly basis or even weekly. So I was thinking about what group of people I initially wanted to work with, just with an understanding that if I could market myself to a smaller niche, then I would be more effective in actually getting clients. And, and so with my experience in jujitsu, having just been a fan of the UFC since I was 14 years old or so, I thought, hey, this would be a great group of people to start working with. And um, so I started putting out some uh, sort of what I, what I tried to, to be specific content to them on social media. I did that for a little while, eventually reached out to a whole bunch of them. Some got back and um, that, that's how I started working with them. You said you also work with uh, entrepreneurs. Um do you see any similarities between their financial habits when it comes to UFC fighters and entrepreneurs or any other of your clientele? Yeah, similar habits in, I guess it's it's helpful to look at it from this perspective. Like now I view managing money with these three underlying principles. And so I can sort of point to those principles now and say, oh, you're not doing this effectively or this or this. And, and so, you know, principle number one is decide what to do with your money. Number two would be ensure that you stick to your decisions. 
And then number three is to track and organize your money in an efficient way. And, and so there are a lot of similarities between not just fighters and entrepreneurs, but even just employees or whoever it might be, where they are, you know, they might create a budget. Cool. You've decided what to do with your money, sort of. Um, but you, if you can't stick to it, you're not actually ensuring that you stick to those decisions. So you're failing at principle number two. Maybe you are tracking your expenses and you do that for, you know, three months and then find it's just too tiring and uh, cumbersome. And so you stop after a while. So you're, you're still not tracking your money in an efficient way uh, in a sort of lifelong habit. So I, I would say I, I look at it through that lens. Okay. So um, one thing you did mention previously was like, um, I think you also posted a reel about this on Instagram, um, paycheck frequency. Your clients, UFC fighters, right? They, they, you said they get paid two to three times a year. And so based on those like three pillars or financial habits that you kind of just stated, you know, tracking your expenses is a big, should be a big deal to those UFC fighters. And so what are some initial tips? Like, should they like be tracking it to a T? What kind of flexibility are they giving themselves? Or are you suggesting they give themselves so that they can live a good, like healthy, like lifestyle and they're not feeling restricted. Yeah, that's it's so most people they we like you you work really hard for your money, you want to know what's happening to it, you want to know where it's going. And that is that's the underlying goal. There are actually two different ways to two approaches there. So you can track your expenses. That's one way to know where your money is going, but you can actually distribute your income and track those distributions. So you're, you're basically tracking income versus tracking expenses. And tracking income is way more efficient because if you can just divvy up your money into separate accounts or cash envelopes, and you just track which amounts are going into each account, as long as you only use each of those accounts or envelopes for their intended purpose, you know where, you're, you know where your money is going. And it, it eliminates the need to track your expenses. So that's what I have my clients do is we make sure that we establish a clear financial foundation for them so that they can see their whole financial picture with a bird's eye view. From there, they can decide what to do with their money. Um, you know, Using separate accounts or, or cash envelopes allow you to ensure that you stick to those decisions. And then because you're tracking it on something I call a cash flow tracker, you know where all of your money is going as well. Man, I love that you said that because I think I was like maybe 18, 19 at the time, maybe 20, I'm not sure, it, when, I, when I was a lot younger. Um, I read this book called uh, the, it wasn't the millionaire next door. It was, oh, the secrets of the millionaire mind. Right. Mm. And one of the things that he said to do that millionaires do with their money was exactly what you just said, have an account for each separate uh, type of expense and make sure when you use that account, you only use it for the purpose of that account. So you have a bills, you have necessities, you have, I don't know, rent, anything like that. And you have it specifically there. And as your income grows, you take those same percentage and you still put in those accounts. So that's how you can inflate your lifestyle without, without losing control of how much money you're spending. Right. And it's yeah. an excellent ex in my opinion, one of the best ways to manage someone's money, in my opinion, and I've implemented, implemented my life and it's changed my financial life completely. That's amazing. Can you, what's the name of that book again? um secrets of the millionaire mind i forget the hmm. author's name but uh if you want i, I can get it after the podcast I'll, I'll let you know yeah for sure yeah i love that and it's it's a proactive approach to managing your money whereas tracking expenses is reactive because like the nature of the classic budget and is that you especially when you're only using one primary checking account the way that you stick to that budget 
is by, well, first you have all these different budgeted categories. Then as you uh, spend your money, you have to track those expenses, categorize them, add them all up, and then subtract it from the original budgeted amount at any point throughout the month to know how much you have left to spend in that category. So it's just so time consuming. It's reactive to a point where, you know, at the end of the, oftentimes it, it's so tedious. You end up just being like, you know, I'll get to it. End of the month comes around. Oh, you know, I went a little bit over. Or, oh, I was a little bit under. That's cool. And it, it's reactive as opposed to, yeah, the, having separate accounts and distributing your money in that way is, is way more proactive. And it, I like, like that it perspective. You. I keep going. Yeah, no, I was gonna say I like that perspective. I would say that I'm very reactive. Like I don't categorize my spending, and then I end up at the end of the month or the end of the week, and I'm like, oh crap, I like overspent on I don't know my going out to eat uh, category. Um, I do track it. I just don't separate it initially. So having that proactive mindset, I think it does help. I personally have seen, I just think about it. And I'm like, oh my God, that's so much work to to do. But it's also a type of, a, a way to kind of automatically make your money work for you. You're, I'm mm -hmm. not constantly feeding into it. And then uh, to my mindset also, to my mental state of like, oh, do I feel like I'm restricting myself? I think being proactive also would help. So Asian, you were about to say something. I don't remember what I was going to say, to be honest. I was trying to think of it as you were talking, but I think it was just to add on to that comment that... Um, I mean, what I personally do, one of the things I learned from that book is uh, to not track my bills, but to have a separate account for my bills. That was the first new account that I, I made. I have like I know, five or six different accounts now, but mm -hmm. the first new account was specifically for my bills. So every every two weeks, I allocate a certain amount of money towards that bills account. And I also do automatic payments going in and out of that account. So I'm never late on my, my bills. There's always money going in there. I, I don't have to think about it. So that way I'll never be late on any... I don't know, credit card payments, my mortgage, my uh, phone bill, card, whatever. It's always going to be recycled out of that bills account, no matter as long as I have the same amount of money coming there every two weeks. So yeah, and for those of you listening or watching, that is an extremely powerful tool to use. It's like Laura said, it's going to take a lot of work to set it all up in the beginning. It's a little annoying, but it's so worth it in the end. You'll never have to look at your accounts ever. Well, you'll have to look at your accounts a lot less uh, throughout the year. <laughs> yeah, completely agree. And that recurring uh, that bills or fixed recurring expense account is amazing because, um, it like one of the most frustrating things is to look at your, open your phone, look at your bank account and be like, well, where did my money go? And, and, and what, one of the things that happens is, you know, you might look at it one day and then two days later, it's, you know, a couple hundred dollars less because your electric came out or whatever it might be. And so that's really frustrating. It's amazing to keep that in a separate category. So you don't have the same sort of surprise when you open up your bank account. And then something that you were saying before, Laura, um, I forget uh, exactly what you're saying, but, um, but, but it's more freeing as well, because when you, like I have three primary spending accounts, one for all my fixed recurring expenses, one for needs, one for wants. And having the bills covered, having the needs covered, as well as, you know, uh, you've got your savings and, and, you know, I've got separate for taxes and all that. But like in terms of spending, when you can have money solely set aside for just fun and leisure, that's guilt-free spending. That's how you can really go and enjoy yourself. And uh, yeah, so I, I could talk all day about, about how much I love this, managing your money in this way. 
<laughs> yeah, I wish. So there was a point um, a couple a year ago, actually, where I did not allocate money for my leisures and desires and wants and things like that. And I felt like I was like, where did all my money go? Why do I feel broke? Like, I know I'm not broke, like making good money and I'm saving it and I'm investing it. But I was doing it like that percentage was way too much when I when I didn't give myself that flexibility and that freedom, like you mentioned, to do what I wanted and the, like the self-care, the the just like, I want to go and like buy something random. Like I didn't give myself that opportunity. And so I felt really constricted. So yeah, I think that um, I've learned from that, uh, that instance, but yeah, thanks for also mentioning that. Like, it's so important to give yourself that freedom. It's gonna, it just changes your mindset. It changes how you think that you're, how well you're investing also changes. So yeah, you were human beings. I mean, we have to enjoy some of, of our money, you know, yeah. even if it's, and to some degree, you just have to. Yeah. So Chris, there's one part of your story that I, I still am really curious about. So um, you graduated from college, internship experience, had an offer from Wall Street, went to do blackjack, right? And after a year, you said, all right, I'm going to do a bunch of gigs. Why did you not fall back onto the degree after you finished with blackjack after a year? Is it because you just didn't want to work for anybody else or... Was there another underlying reason as to why you didn't go back? Yeah, the the curtain had already been open. Like the light had now been shown, so to speak, on the fact that you could actually make money in these unique sort of different ways. And even though I didn't have a full understanding of, you know, remote work, freelance work, um, I, I just, I had been exposed to this idea that you, you didn't have to sit a regular office job. Mm -hmm. And having come from a place where, I just really did not enjoy school. And I, for the life of me, all I wanted was my freedom and independence. Um, I, I must say, I am so thankful that I had the opportunity to have those ambitions. Like you only want that when your basic needs are are met. So, you know, full stomach, clean running water, you know, all, all that stuff. But yeah, that's, that's, it's what I really wanted was that freedom and ability to make money on my own. So um, and again, I, I, I still, to this day, feel like if I really wanted to, I could go get a job. I have a much better, you know, understanding of how businesses work. I could speak better in an interview, like all those things. I have the degree. If I could present the skills that I have for the job that they need it done, I'm, I'm confident I could fall back on a job. So, um, it just felt like, let me continue pursuing this. And if it doesn't work out, I still have a safety net. It's funny that you keep on saying if it doesn't work out, but it seems like you just keep on having success after success after success. So that mentality is actually propelling you forward. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 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 been a lot of uh, it's been a lot of work, and there's been some close calls, but yeah, it's I'm just you know one step at a time. Nice. This is this has been has been great, Chris. Like we really enjoyed your perspective, you sharing your story, and then the things you're doing with your clients here, trying to help not only like that community, but also entrepreneurs. So um, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. But one thing we also we always do with our guests is we want to know where people can find you. Where can our listeners kind of get to know you more? Where can where can they get in contact with you? Sure. So the easiest way to get uh, in contact with me is to just shoot me a text. Uh, 240-630-0568. And if you want to follow along with my journey to create less boring social media content, then you could follow me at Chris Allen Hanna. There's no H at the end of that, Hanna. Um, I made some horribly boring videos the last like couple of years. And so now I'm finally uh, trying to create a bit more entertaining content. So if you want to follow me along on that journey, you, you certainly can. 
Awesome. And then we'll link all that in the show notes so people can click and they'll land on your page. Cool. Thank all you right, so much, Chris. Lauren Essien. Yeah, thank you. And I think that brings us to, to the end of another great episode of the Money Curious Podcast. And with that, it's a wrap.